Can you, will you please start with liberation and creation? Liberation and creation. When you and all, and all sentient, sentient beings are reflected together in the spiritual mirror, all are transparent and liberated by that transparency. Then immediately in the next moment, your individual face comes up again very clearly. That is called creation. You are constantly recreating your life. My, <coughs> sorry. Donna, please. Um, Christian came on while we were meditating. Should Christian in and then I'll go after Christian. Okay, yes, thank you. Yeah, I see it now. <clears throat> it did not Sounds good. It. So pardon my tardiness, everybody. Um, Dojin uh, Zenji tells this story. Uh, uh, Gensha came forward saying, what will become of them when the clear mirror appears suddenly? Seppo said, both of them will appear. I don't agree. What then? Ask me again, please. What will become of them when the clear mirror appears suddenly? It will disintegrate. Seppo and Gensha are discussing what happens when a clear mirror sees another clear mirror. When you see the clear mirror, you are also the clear mirror. So Gensha is asking his student about this. Seppo says, both are clear mirrors, which means they both disappear. But Gensha is not satisfied with this answer. So Seppo asks his teacher, how about you? What do you say? Gensha says, both mirrors disintegrate. They are shattered, broken into pieces, hundreds, myriads of tiny broken shards. Dogen comments on this story and finally he says, what then is the shape of the broken pieces? It is eternally deep water and the moon in the sky. Okay, Alan. Sorry, I was muted. Through our experience, our study and our practice, we try to see the mirror where all life is reflected. We try to understand what truth is. So you practice and then when you look in this mirror, what happens? All of a sudden the mirror shatters. It breaks into pieces and there is no reflection. The reflection of you, me, trees, birds, American culture, and all sentient beings disintegrates and there is nothing there. There is just a vast openness of the sky. Emily? The vast openness of the sky is called Akasha in Sanskrit. It is very difficult to translate Akasha. Sometimes we say sky or space, but it means something more than ordinary space. Before there is a clear mirror, before there are any reflections in the mirror, there is just a vast transparent openness 
where all sentient beings coexist in peace, in harmony. When the mirror shatters, the form of your life breaks into pieces. Your consciousness cannot make any discrimination, so nothing at all is separate from you. <coughs> if you see a tree, you have no concept of tree because nothing separates you from the tree. Then in the next moment, according to the function of causes and conditions, energy shoots up from the ground and reforms the frame of a tree. There is a tree, but it is not the tree you usually see. The new tree is like a snake after shedding its skin. It, is, it has a new form, and that form is shining. Um, about an hour ago, my wife was looking for a scroll, a, a, some calligraphy that would say form is emptiness, and she found two different ones. And one was like so heavy handed, we didn't like it. And the other one was like so formal and controlled, we didn't like it. So, but it was fun for, she wanted it for her tea room. Mm. Okay, Milan. Okay, my internet connection is weak. So I hope I can stay. That shining tree is a clear mirror for you, for you because it is you. You see your own life in the tree's life. You can see your own line, life there because a tree is not something created separately from a human being. So your life is also like a new snake. A new human being appears in the form of your five skandhas and your life is shining like the moon. You are reflecting pure energy, the essential nature of life. At that time, you really appreciate your life. Nice. Well, Stephanie, please. I think it's me, Trouty. Oh, sorry. It's all right. You know, the, the names jump back and forth, so. <laughs> if you see a tree, <clears throat> pardon me, you really appreciate it because the tree is you and you are the tree. So very naturally there is communication. You and the tree can talk together. When you talk with a tree that is changing color in autumn, maybe you write a poem. That poem is something more than its words, a kind of sentimental, huge, deep and completely inconceivable world is there. Your poem is a clear mirror reflecting the essential nature of human life. So according to Dogen's theory, what happens when, you, when your clear mirror meets a clear mirror? Both mirrors shatter into pieces and there is just a great vast openness. That is liberation. You are free. Then next, what should you do? We must not forget recreation. So come back and pay careful attention to every single aspect of your daily life. Getting up in the morning, washing your face, having breakfast, and walking on the street. That is called creating your life. This is very important. 
Otherwise, you cannot take care of your life freely, and you cannot build up a peaceful world. It's hard to understand what the point of Zen teaching is exactly. Maybe you think it is so, to find the solution to a koan, a Zen puzzle. I don't think this is the real purpose. Maybe you think that the main purpose of Zen is to attain enlightenment. I don't think this is Zen. It is a part of Zen, but not the whole. <coughs> Daniel? No, Christian, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, Zen Buddhism emphasizes the best way to live in terms of Dojin's third point. From moment to moment, the five skandhas of your body and mind are liberated and then reform to create. Um, Zen Buddhism emphasizes the best way to live in terms of Dojin's third point. From moment to moment, the five skandhas of your body and mind are liberated and then reform to create a new life. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. right. It, it just kind of covered. Okay. Yeah, that works. I think. Okay. This process is the maturing of life. It's working in the life of all sentient beings. If you want to mature your life, you have to consider all three points, coexistence, transparency, and creation. Otherwise, your life is up in the air and you can become crazy, crazy by spiritual life. For example, if, you're, if you see your life reflected in the ancient mirror and experience how wonderful life is, you feel excited, fantastic. But maybe you start to think that all things are the same, right? or wrong, good or bad, all are Buddha. This is confusion. If you are lucky, you become a mysterious person, putting on a performance to gain people's respect. If you are unlucky, you are in, you are in jail or in a mental hospital. So Finally, you have to reach the third point at, and come back to recreation. Is anyone, is anyone getting what this recreation is? Well, he was just talking about it. How you go about your, remember how you go about your daily life. Wake up, wash your face, blah, blah. Yeah, I think I think that there. I think he's also also talking. It's a concept Tiknak Han used to talk a lot about, which is creating life anew in each moment, mm -hmm. um, and and sort of the the wonder of that, even just the each moment. Which, even though it seems like it's may not be particularly fantastical, it it really is. William Blake had this thing of you go from innocence to experience to organize innocence. And I wonder <laughs> if that's like the recreation. You know, I like that. Yeah. No, yeah. You are already in the ancient mirror. So try to find a way to calm down and reflect your life again and again. Stand up in the coexistent place 
see the clear mirror, experience it breaking into pieces and come back to everyday life. Create a new human life with wisdom based on what you have seen. Then your life is really rooted on earth. You can live in peace and through your everyday life, you show a peaceful way of life to others. Ellen. Okay, hold on. I was just making a little note here. Okay, um, <coughs> the maturing of human life. I think the maturing of human life is like a persimmon ripening. When the persimmon fruit becomes red, it is still hard, but it tastes good. Hmm, not my experience, but anyway, if you leave the fruit on the tree, it becomes soft and perfectly sweet but the ripe persimmon doesn't stay on the branch. It drops on the ground and all its guts come out. That persimmon is, uh, is never going back to the branch. It is free, liberated. That is, that is total, perfect maturity, Buddha. And Millie? If you see your life reflected in the spiritual mirror, your life shatters into pieces and you experience something deep. You are liberated. Your life is still there, but it is completely liberated. Then your life turns a new leaf from myriad broken pieces on the ground. Your life reforms. Your five skandhas shoot up again. And from your new body and mind, a kind of light appears that others can see. Kim? When you have experienced your life reflected in the spiritual mirror, you can take care of your concrete daily life based on that mirror. Your five skandhas seem to be the same as before, but you can deal with your five skandhas in a different way. Paying attention to living with maturity and an open heart. That transformation is the final goal we are seeking. Maturity, 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 I'm sorry, is not a concept. It is a way to demonstrate your life every day based on the spiritual mirror. When you demonstrate your life, your five skandhas are reflected in that mirror beyond your understanding of your human consciousness. That's why Zen teachers always tell you to deal with everyday life as Buddha. When you deal with your eating bowl as Buddha, the bowl is not merely a bowl. It is nothing but Buddha's face. That is why you have to take best care of your eating bowl. We don't understand this, but please <laughs> do it anyway. I, I want to say something real quick about what he's talking about here. I think it's Suzuki Roshi in one of his books that he talks about. Well, no, it may be uh, Joko Beck, um, Donna or Kim or Ellen, you may know. But the story about um, the student reminding the student to close the door softly. You guys remember that one? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember one time, and there was also something yeah. else about scooting chairs across the floor. Yeah, um, I was there. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember Flint or Peg, someone talking Peg, about it was Flint. Lost okay. It. Yeah. And they were talking about just how treating that chair, being mindful with that chair, that door, that made such an impact on me. So I don't know if it did on anybody else, but yeah, it sure oh yeah. Did. It did. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you guys. Nelda. Well, look at your life before you started Zen practice. How often did you take care of things carelessly? But after sitting Zazen and studying Buddhist teachings, which is always telling you to take care of your life, very naturally, a different way of life comes up. You take good care of your boots and toilet paper. You cover your book with a wrapping cloth and hold it with a sincere heart. You don't know why, but something has penetrated your life. You can feel that. That is maturity. Maturity lets you live together with all sentient beings in peace and harmony, and also with non-sentient beings. And, I agree. And creation. Mm -hmm. I mean, your bowl is not a sentient being, but, right. but it's an extension of you it's made of the same matter so it's just a different permutation but it of seems me. sometimes rocks and stones are, are kind of treated as sentient beings so i don't think it's sentient beings i think you could think of anything as a sentient being i don't know if others agree i but do it, it's yes. just, it's not in buddhism it's not black and white what's sentient what's not Oh, thank you for it's that. It's a way of looking at things. That's how I get it. Yeah. Okay. Thank yeah. you, Kim. That's how yeah. Stephanie gets it. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Kim. Add, add, like add, add two seconds, two, two things to that. I think um, I totally agree. And another way to look at it is it's more about relationships in general mm -hmm. between anything, whether it's a person or thing. <laughs> right? yeah. So just, yeah. Yes. Very well, thank true. You. Thank you. Yes. Dogen Zenji says that to study Buddhism is to study the self. We have to see our life and learn what human life is. We have to learn our bodies, our minds, and the whole panorama picture of life. Your body and mind is your mirror. Your thinking is your mirror. Your occupation is also your mirror. If you are a mountaineer, through being a mountaineer, you can learn the life of the trees, the life of birds, life of frogs, life of Americans, and life of Japanese. You can learn. We have to start to learn, but it's very difficult because we have lots of prejudices, just like an octopus. Do you know about the octopus? There is a very simple way of a fisherman to catch an octopus. Just tie a rope of any kind of pot and let it sink to the bottom of the ocean. An octopus will get into the pot and feel relief. Then the fisherman pulls up on the rope and the pot starts to move. When the pot moves, the octopus clings to it, this is my territory. Finally, the fisherman catches the octopus. Christian? 
There are many pots that human beings occupy and depend on to feel relief. Buddhism, Christianity, or national culture. When our pot moves, for example, by the functioning of American culture, we cling to our pot. What happens? By egoism, by prejudice, the octopus dies. It commits suicide. So one by one, we have to take off our prejudices. Daniel? To practice zazen is to take off each prejudice. How? Just sit down. This is the simple practice we do. When you practice zazen as shikantaza, zazen becomes a huge mirror reflecting the life of all sentient beings. You can see the original nature of your own life there. So sit down and reflect your body and mind in that mirror. When you look in the mirror, the usual frame of your life immediately disappears. Then your five skandhas reform, creating a new frame of body and mind, and your life takes one step toward the future. Donna? Part three, body and mind. Chapter nine, Buddha's body. In Mahayana Buddhist philosophy, Buddha's body is understood in three ways, Dharmakaya, Nirmanakaya, and Sambhogakaya. This is the Buddha's total personality, we say. Uh, Dharmakaya is Buddha's true body. Dharma is truth and kaya means body. Dharmakaya is the same as the ultimate principle of existence. The subtle nature of dharmakaya is the original source of being, which is nothing but energy. That is the seed of Buddha, that is the seed of, of Buddha nature. Everyone has the seed of Buddha nature and deserves to let it grow, blossom, and bear fruit. Where can that seed grow? That is Nirmanakaya, Buddha's transformational transformation body. Nirmanakaya is the phenomenal world. Your human body, your mind, your circumstances, and everything around you. But in order for your seed oh, to grow, <laughs> but in order for your seed to grow, you have to put it in an appropriate place. That is Sambhogakaya, Buddha's joy body. Sambhogakaya is the place where there is harmony between truth and the phenomenal world. And the seed of your Buddha nature becomes the mature fruit of your life. That fruit has its own peculiar, incredible flavor according to the conditions of the particular place in which it grew. Rain, soil, the warmth of the sun, everything works together and the seed matures into wonderful ripe fruit with a flavor you cannot put into words. When you describe Buddha's three bodies, it's kind of a Buddhaology that makes you confused. But you can actually practice this, how? Whoever you are, you can manifest the true body with your human body. Even Shakyamuni Buddha had a human body. 
But Buddha's human body is something more because you can see truth actualized there. So first accept your human body and then use it to manifest something more than what you understand, something deep. But it, oh, sorry. I'm confused now. Okay, go ahead, please. <laughs> Thank you. Body three, two poems on Buddha's body. According to the history of some Buddhist Buddhism in China, there were two famous disciplines of Hangzhen, the fifth patriarch. They were Shen Xiu who became the founder of the Northern School called Gradual Sen and Hu Neng, who became the sixth patriarch and the founder of the South, Southern School called Sudden Sen. In the Sutra of Hu Neng, platform sutra, Hu Neng says that one, that one day, Hang Zheng invited all monks to write poems showing their understanding of enlightenment. So Han Xiu wrote, I will stop here. Okay, uh, Nalda, please. This body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a mirror bright. Take heed to keep it always clean and let not dust collect upon it. Do you want me to go on, Trudy? Sure. <clears throat> Saying this body is the Bodhi tree means Zen Xu understands his body as Dharmakaya, the completely pure absolute body. In Buddhism, we cannot separate the body from the mind. So if you have a pure body like the Bodhi tree, then your mind is like a pure bright mirror. That mirror is always working, accepting and reflecting everything without discrimination, without attaching to anything. But in the human world, that pure mirror is covered up by a kind of curtain or by the dust of dualistic consciousness. So we don't know our pure mind is there. If we clean off the dust, we can discover our original nature. So um, we were studying this the other day in orientation. Um, and I never got it before, but it's, it's really uh, the, what he said a little earlier about that's um, gradual enlightenment. It's like you do this hard practice and then you become enlightened. Mm. Uh, and then what Huneng does, which we'll read about, is the sudden enlightenment. So it's not like one's wrong and one's right, which I always thought it was, like one outdid the other, but it's more like just two ways of practicing. Oh, thanks for saying that, Kim. Well, I had it wrong until, like, you know, we started looking at it. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Shinsui. But but Huneng, I got to say one more thing. Huneng is picked as as a successor to the fifth patriarch. So that's one of the reasons why I thought, well, this Shenkug 
had it wrong, but it's not that he had it wrong, but it wasn't the way that the 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 way the Buddhism was going to go, right? For his teacher. So anyway, I understand better now. I think. Yeah, it's real interesting. Okay. Shen Sui attained enlightenment after many years of practice. So his poem says that to attain enlightenment, you must practice and purify your body and mind gradually. According to Shen Sui, purity and impurity are something that you can get or avoid through practicing or not practicing. If you practice, your body becomes pure. If you don't, your body is impure. So Shin Sui expends great energy to keep his body and mind pure through his practice. When Hui Meng read this poem, he recognized that Shen Xu's idea of purity came from a dualistic sense of purity as something opposed to impurity. So he wrote his own poem. There is no body tree, no stand of a mirror bright. Since all is void, where can the dust alight? Sorry. Um, yeah, just a quick comment, you know, to what you were saying, Kim, I think it's really interesting to compare the two um, perspectives and you know, another perspective, of course, is to not look at the dualistic side of either and raise the question whether about how awareness or enlightenment is available at any moment to anyone, which is not necessarily either gradual or sudden, but maybe it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know. But anyways, um, so um, wait, the, the other fun thing about this story is Hunang was an illiterate uh, like one thing said a kitchen worker or just a, but he was illiterate and oh really so he was picked and then he had to go off for 20 years and get smart and learn how to read and stuff and then he came back and he ran the temple interesting he, yeah. he, he, he his life was in danger in a, from what someone told me because he was chosen but didn't know anything right <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the idea that I was I was running with a little is that even just any common person with the right mindset at any time can have awareness and enlightenment, um, you know, just in, in the moment that it doesn't necessarily take 20 or 30 years, which I think, you know, Buddha's, you know, there's our teachings along those lines. But anyways, um, I'll keep going. <laughs> well, be before you go on, something that came up in me as we were talking about and one poem now, now it didn't, when we read it, seems very dualistic. And this second one just seems so clear, reminds me of the Dharma talk we had on Sunday where Todd said, you don't sit Zazen, Zazen sits Zazen. And it just, of course. And it, for me personally, it just took all this pressure off. All I have to do is sit and Zazen sits Zazen. And I just have to be open to whatever shows up. I don't have to create anything, modify my breathing, you know, watch my thoughts go by like clouds, all these different things we hear. I just have to sit. Yeah. 
Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, I like that. I mean, it's so easy. I, I do this all the time. I put so much pressure on myself when I'm meditating and just, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> I'll continue. Well, that, that was uh, my first uh, meditation instruction. Reading a book was basically just do it. I mean, right. just do it. <laughs> yeah. Just do it and be open. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's that. It was more. Because <laughs> yeah. there, see what happens. <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, according to Hugh Nang, um, whether you think your body is pure or not pure, it doesn't matter. You are already perfectly pure because you are already Buddha. So at any time, you can suddenly realize your a Bodhi tree body, which is completely beyond your perception of purity and impurity. Having that realization is what it means by no Bodhi tree. This is real, supreme purity. Daniel? Since all is void, means really purity is beyond any perception of purity or impurity there is no form no color no smell nothing to grasp saying no form means something is constantly working dynamically if so there is nothing solid for dust to cover up alert has arrived the truth of no solid form is why supreme purity is called nothingness or emptiness Emptiness is just constant motion. If you try to grasp emptiness or the ultimate nature of being through your consciousness, you have already fallen into a dualistic view. Nothing, nothing from the outside can be brought into the purity of emptiness. If you bring even the slightest thing into it, that thing is something defiled, a concept fabricated by your consciousness. Weening said, there is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of mirror bright, because he has passed through the net of seeking to attain enlightenment and gone beyond the concept of enlightenment. Forgetting that stage of enlightenment that deals with purity and impurity, Weening just goes on working his human life as pure being as Buddha. Dogen's, uh -huh. not, Dogen's not pure body. Human beings pretty easily get attached to our property, our position and our clever statements and also our bodies. So to keep his disciples from attachment to their human bodies, Shakyamuni Buddha taught the mindfulness practice of observing the body as impure. This practice also occurs in Christian monasteries where they look at human skeletons. We should, we should try to understand the deep meaning of this teaching because if you try to copy the mindfulness practice of observing the body as impure in a traditional way, based on ideas of good and bad, it becomes nothing but a moral problem I don't mean that the traditional instruction is wrong. It's pretty good. 
but real purity is beyond dualistic ideas of purity and impurity. If you practice mindfulness based on a dualistic understanding, you will never have a peaceful mind. In? Practically, I'm just thinking about the fact that he doesn't tell the whole story here and that when Buddha had his monks meditate on the impurity of the body, they got freaked out. And then he, he, he took it back and said, no, you don't have to do it. It was, it was too much for them. Practically speaking, your body is one being. But when you think about your body as being either pure or impure, you have already split into one body. You've already split your one body into two, a pure body and an impure body. So which one is right? Is your body pure or impure? Whichever answer you give, it doesn't hit the mark. It doesn't hit the mark because the idea of purity is a human value. Milan? And that's really true, isn't it? That you wouldn't think of a tree as being impure. You know, one tree being impure, another one pure. Yes. Or, uh, or uh, an ant or a bee. Oh, that's an impure bee. Oh, Malin, sorry. You, you believe you can achieve purity by doing something good or avoiding something bad. That's all right, but it's hard to pin down exactly what you what to do because the human world is constantly changing. Something, sometimes something we think is good turns into something bad and something bad becomes something good. So we have to digest our sense of morality by polishing it until it becomes religious life. In religious life, we have to polish, polish religion through and through, again and again, going beyond practice based on moral sense to consider what real religion practice, what real religion practice really is. Nelda? When religion is thoroughly digested in your life, it becomes no religion. The negative term no or not implies transcendence of conceptual thinking coming from your human mind. You become religion itself. That is real religion. Real religion is perfect peace. Dogen understood the practice of observing the body as impure. Very deeply, completely beyond the traditional understanding. He expresses his understanding in the opening of Shobo Ginzo Sanjushichi Bon Bodai Bunpo. 37 conditions contributing to bodhisattva practice. This passage begins, observing the body as not pure means that one skin bag of the present observing body is the entire universe of the 10 directions. The ordinary idea of observing is to see something in the distance. This is dualistic. Real observation is to merge or become one with the dynamic process of observation itself. How can we understand this? According to grammatical structure, a sentence is made up of subject, object, and verb. But when you as subject exactly participate in your object, 
then your object is not something separate from you. You're exactly the same and one. So there is no object. Is there no object? If there is no object, very naturally, there can be no subject. What's left? The verb, activity itself. That is called pure functioning. A great paragraph. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, some of this is so, it seems so uh, circular and hard to follow, but that did not. <laughs> For example, uh, are we going to continue? Yeah, okay. Uh, for example, when you are sleeping like a log, there is no sleep for you to observe because you can't see your own sleep. You don't perceive what's going on, but your body and mind are exactly participating in sleep. So they are sleep itself. At that time, sleep is not an idea running through your head. So we say it is no sleep. No sleep means you are exactly one with the pure functioning of sleep. It's very difficult to say anything about this pure functioning. Provisionally, we use the word pure, but within that purity, there is no trace of any concept. So we can also say it is not pure. When the original pure functioning of life itself appears in your human activity and you realize the pure functioning of your life, it is not purity that appears. Original purity manifests as not purity. This is real purity. So real purity and not purity are not different. They are the same. Okay. Dogen Zenji's Not Pure takes your human body far beyond any dualistic ideas of purity or impurity to the place where you cannot put any names on the skin bag of your human body. It is absolutely beyond ideas or concepts. So we say it is empty. If you experience your human body as emptiness, at that time your body is the entire universe in the 10 directions the whole world, one total reality, or Buddha. So next, Dogen says, should I read that, Trouty? Yes, or? please. Yes, please. Since this is the true body, it is observing the body as not pure, which is vividly hopping along. If there is no body, practice is unattained, teaching is unattained, observation is unattained. No hopping along means that observation is unattained. Already the attainment of observation is completely manifest. You should realize that hopping along is already attained. In Buddhism, purity is not something you try to attain by doing something. It is what you find within doing, it is what you find within doing something. When you are right in the middle of activity itself, your activity, activity is very clear, yet you simply can't perceive what that activity is. You are there, but there is no trace of you or the object of your activity. This is called observing the body as not pure or observing the body as emptiness. In Sanskrit, we say, 
vipassana, which means wisdom, insight, or discernment. Emily? Sorry, I was muted. Vipassana practice is to see the source of your existence very clearly. That is right observation. What do you observe? Activity itself. There is nothing but movement. Life is just hopping along. Activity itself is called shikan, the flow of activity that is not defiled by this perception of your discriminating consciousness. Him. Zazen is shikantaza. Zazen as shikantaza is nothing but the experience of touching the flowing source of the human world <coughs> before you are conscious of your own existence. Wow. Mm -hmm. Dare I use my, I think it's my mouse that caused the problem, but I want to highlight this. Yeah. Even though you are aware of breathing, you don't know what breathing is. You don't know what your human body is. It is just something vividly alive, hopping along, working with the universe, activity itself. <coughs> Milan? When you do Zazen exactly, there is no Zazen. If there is no Zazen, there is no body and no attainment of observation. Since there is nothing to be attained by Zazen practice, practice is unattained. All you can do is just be there, just be activity itself. When you cannot separate your skin back and the universe, there is transcendence. You observe your human body as Buddha. Then your Zazen is called Shikantasa. Thank you. And your body is entire universe in the 10 directions. Nalda. If you do Zazen exactly, you experience tranquility. There's nothing to be attained, so all you have to do is just be there. Just enjoy observing your body as emptiness. This is called samatha. We, we say that samatha practices tranquility, stillness, samadhi, or one-pointedness. But actually, you don't really know what the real pure sense of tranquility is. You just calmly and firmly abide in Zazen, which is vividly hopping along. Stephanie? I think Stephanie, Stephanie stepped up. So. I see. Okay, well, shall we wait for her or? I think she left. I, she um, she said she was tired, so she had to leave. Okay. Uh, the true state of hopping along is activity passing through activity to freedom. When your body and mind is perfectly tranquil in zazen, your life touches the source of the human world with your whole body and mind. At that time, you experience your life as nothing but flowing process, flowing practice, flowing activity, energy, 
that is gushing out like spring water constantly gushing up from the ground. The Dogen says, uh, Krishna, would you like to read uh, what Dogen says? Sure. Um, the so-called attainment of observation is the daily activities of sweeping the grounds and washing the floors. Because of sweeping the grounds with which moon is this? Or sweeping the grounds and washing the floor with the second moon, there is suchness of the entire great earth. Here, Dogen is talking about case 21 of the book of Equimunity. In that story, Ungan was sweeping the temple grounds when his Dharma brother, Dogo, passed by and said, you are working very hard, aren't you? So Ungan said, there is another person who doesn't know how hard he's working. Then Dogo said, if so, there is a second moon. Ungan lifted his broom saying, which moon is this? In common sense, we can say one person works hard and another person doesn't work hard. Here, Dogo makes this distinction. So it implies the dualistic world, but in the pure sense of flowing activity, we can say there is hard work or not hard, oh, excuse me, but in the pure sense of flowing activity, can we say there is hard work or not hard work? No, you cannot pin down what the pure activity of work is. When your sweeping is working together with the whole universe, there is one moon. But if you observe it dualistically, there is a second moon in your mind. For example, Zazen itself is pure activity, but in many ways, Zazen isn't pure because many kinds of Zazen happen. If you yawn, there is yawning Zazen. If you feel bored, there is boring Zazen. This is reassuring. <laughs> that is uh, that is a second moon yawning zazen boring zazen there are many uh, there are many moons so which moon is real zazen is it enlightenment zazen no is it dualistic zazen no that is why ungan holds up the broom and says which moon is this in other words there's nothing to say so forget all those moons and just do Zazen as pure activity. Then Dogen says, there is suchness of the entire great earth. Pure Zazen is exactly this suchness. It is not the suchness of your tiny human world. It is the vastness of the whole world. This is the total picture of the reality you live in. You always do Zazen with that vastness. Sitting in Zazen, you are exactly manifesting the vastness of the whole world. You don't know this because at that time there is no observation and no body, but still the pure action of Zazen is very clear. This is Dogen's explanation of the significance of the mindfulness practice of observing the body as not pure. If you read Dogen Genji's explanation in Japanese, it's like repeating a magic spell. If you 
<coughs> understand it well, you will touch the deep source of Buddhist teaching, which penetrates into your life and the life of all sentient beings. Milan. Your human body is a bag of skin and simultaneously it is something beyond a bag of skin. It is spiritual. So accept your human body as Buddha. What is meant by Buddha? There is something beyond the idea of purity or impurity, something working together with all sentient beings. This is the total picture of your human body. You cannot pin down exactly what it is, but temporarily we say Buddha. Everything is Buddha. So please take care of your human body as Buddha. Constantly have a fresh eye to see, to observe your human body as Buddha. When you do this, the Buddha body blooms and you go over the barrier of what you think of as your body. All your bonds drop away and you're not affected by distinctions such as the thought of my body. Um, that is Sambo Gakaya, truth manifested within your human body. Next moment, a thought arises and you are back in your ordinary body. Then, if you keep quiet, the Buddha body arises again. The important point is you can do something with your human body because it is more than just your body. You can do it because pure energy is always with you. It's too close for you to know what it is intellectually, but you can be it. This is your practice. Shall we stop here and maybe uh, have some questions or some ideas that you would like to discuss? I know that uh, actually Kim, I think it was you Kim, right? That you have um, <clears throat> started something, I don't know, was it in, in this group um, that you had question, ask question after each reading, each person reading? You know, we were doing, we were doing that for a few, um, before. But with each paragraph, actually. <coughs> but uh, here, let me go back to uh, here. So it's only four of us? No. I, I see only four people. If you go to gallery view, you should see uh, eight. Where is gallery? <laughs> go to view in the upper right corner. Don't have that there. Well, if you, maybe you need to hover the mouse over. It's right by, it's right by speaker view in the right corner. There's a little box just to the right of it. If you see that. Right corner. Right corner, I'm in the right corner. It's purple, but there is, I don't see anything like- The word you call view. There is no view. I have, um, 
the camera for us to see. Uh, then I have uh, the, the sound that I'm connected. Then I have uh, half a pie for connection. I No, no, below that. Below in the, this? In the, in the window, in the Zoom window, you should see the word view. Well, there is only search. And at the bottom is invite, mute me. Well, close the participant list. Okay. You don't need that. Okay. Well, oh, now I have you. Yes, now I have you. Thank you. Okay. Gallery, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. And I can enlarge it so I can see everybody. Um, we have several passages that uh, uh, people already commented on. And uh, there were also probably some passages that we did not comment on. And I was wondering whether uh, you would like um, to say something or ask, especially when, when it goes into the question, okay, here we have duality. No, we don't have duality. And this, this goes off and on, right? And we understand that we don't have duality, but we constantly face duality. So I gave this as an example, but yeah, Milan, you have something that you wanted to know? No. So perhaps it might be better to, to do it right after each paragraph reading. I think okay. so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. Were they in the non-dualistic, I mean, some people, most people say that Buddhism is non-dualistic, mm -hmm. but, but then Pega said, no, it really is, I think, or, or I don't know. But were they, were, like, were Vedic religions dualistic, and were they responding against that? Yes, well, the Brahmanical, definitely, because um, they, they wanted to well, dualistic in the, in the sense that they agreed on that they have a self, Atman, and then they wanted to work up through meditation and uh, various practices like yoga and other things, uh, that they will experience unity with uh, sort of the abstract big principle Brahman. And in that that will be the liberation. So you have a duality, but at the end, uh, merging the Atman into Brahman, I don't know whether there is still any duality. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And, and I, I really love the paragraph, one of the last ones we read where it talks about the integration, how you can experience nothing but the flowing process and practice and flowing activities of energy of life, because I think it really speaks to the non-duality of things. And I think a lot of times, you know, Buddhism, we talk about self and no self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another translation of no self is that not like the body is not the self, which is different than no self, right? And so that feels non-dualistic to me. And so I think it ties with the idea that 
we're just part of this flowing energy field that is much more fluid and that we need it's that we need to hold on to things a lot lighter instead of hold on to things so tightly and grasp and how lovely that our manifestation gives us senses to see ourselves, the universe, and all other things. That, that the tree is me, and each of you is me, and reflecting me in different ways. And this wonderfully cushy couch is me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love that our energetic manifestation also gives us the opportunity intellectually and through the senses to see ourselves. Yeah, it's what a weird it? balance, isn't it? Between the intellectual and the, the sensory, like feeling it, intuiting it and emotionally getting it and then intellectually that back and forth, that's, you know. And then once we do get it intellectually and through the senses, letting all of that go. Right, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a sweet spot. Well, that's what we were reading about at the beginning, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. I like the idea of putting something as mundane as like doing a, a daily chore with the <laughs> next to the idea of recreation. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really uh, framed it in a way that was very easy for me to understand. Because so often I fall into the trap of I'm enduring life instead of I'm, I'm in life, you know. So um, that's a good thing that I'm going to practice, I think. And, and do you think in the Karate Kid when he's doing the wipe it on, wipe it off, he's, doing, on that, myself. <laughs> he's doing that meditation? Of recreation? Of recreation, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think, think what, okay, go another. I don't think he did it consciously, but didn't that become embodied because the minute he had to do his karate kid thing, yeah. thing, um, he didn't even have to think it was already embodied. So I think that what you're saying, Emily, that you know, what I love about the whole idea of the recreation is, you know, thinking of life like each moment as like a creative act. I think gives it a whole different dynamic, which I think can be really exciting and just really emphasize what's possible, you know, yeah. So I have a question for the young people in the group. I look back at my pre-retirement life and my professional life. It was so busy. I don't know that it could have held this practice between yard work, housework, work, work, volunteer work, child work, husband work, my own personal. I mean, it was, how do you guys do it? I, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I can't imagine with all the different, the density of life activities, how one does that. I'm so delighted I came to this practice in my later years where I could slow down and really take it in. Um, I think if I didn't have this practice, I wouldn't be able to maintain my life. 
um, in the way that I could see the potential for it. You know, I would endure it, but I wouldn't be in it. So that's what I'm seeking with this practice. I meet a lot of people at my work who are enduring, you know, surviving. What's that word you use, I do what, to people? I meet a lot of people at work who endure. Oh, you meet a lot. I thought you said you mutilate or something. No, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah, I meet a lot of people who are, who are not actively in their lives. Like they're going through motions. And I was really struck by Thich Nhat Hanh talking about how you have to know yourself um, before you help others. So I've really taken that as like a, a directive, I think. Because a lot of people's problems kind of arise from their non-participation in their spirituality and, and mental well-being. I had that feeling with the mothers of uh, gun violence that they really needed to deal with this other violence, you know, this internal yeah. dukkha. But maybe I was just in that mood or something. I don't know. But it's just no, seemed, I, I it seemed to me there was something going on there that was beyond gun violence. Yeah. Donna, you've been very quiet today. I always like what you say. Well, thank you. Um, I have to admit, I really, really liked the last part of this where he was talking about energy and flow and how, you know, if you're in the flow, you know, there, you know, Concept, conceptions are gone, you know, your, even your, your sense of body mind is gone. You are, you are just engaged and not separate. Um, but I also, there were also bits through there that um, were really quite astonishing. Um, it just in terms of one of the things that amazes me about uh, Buddhism is this cosmic view the, um, we've been looking at the uh, Abhatamsaka Sutra, uh, the, the Flower Ornament Sutra, and that is the, the numbers, the, you know, the, the universes within universes within universes that just go on and on. And there, and um, some of the teachers, you know, say that, oh yeah, Zen, you know, Zen is quite fond of the Flower Ornament Sutra. And at first I didn't really get that at all, but I think it's coming out particularly in this, this great cosmic view of, of us as within, within it. You know, it's, it's both, you know, the in individual, but it just expands outward in inconceivable ways. So I got kind of hints of that in the in the last part, where he's talking about we are you know we are a universe and you know we are are a part 
of all of us together are that universe. So anyway. So that's very different from heaven and earth, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what you're talking about is part of it's all together. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a cosmos uh, in the Greek sense, <laughs> and you know it's universal. It's not. It, on the one hand, it is extraordinarily faceted, and yet you know the 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 Avatamsaka Sutras the is the one with um, oh Trouty help me which whose dharma whose net is it is it Brahma net and yeah. yeah. Brahma Jala it, yeah the this jeweled this jeweled net where everything is reflecting it's interconnected it reflects one another and the you know the just the sheer level of complexity will <laughs> kind of is stunning in some ways. Is is that the same as Endra's net? Yeah. I think so, yes. So isn't that though a, a fantastic vision to experience, right? Oh yeah. Oh, psychedelic. I've actually had that experience you did? once in my life, Endra's net. I I I I at least I didn't know what that experience was. But as I described it in one of these readings, someone said, you were in Andrew's net. But oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, how it was lovely. It was lovely. It was lovely. I can't tell you how I got there and I can't tell you how to get back. Hmm. It may happen again. <gasps> I hope. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting how that it, uh, he was saying that emptiness is um, constant motion, and you know, talking about energy flow and fields, and you know, when you think about back to the cosmic element that you're talking about, Donna, I mean, literally from a physics standpoint, um, the flow of time happens because molecules. <laughs> are agitated and heated and move. That doesn't happen, there's no flow of time. So the idea that emptiness is constant motion, that is, that's like, the, that's like at the foundation of what literally makes the universe work, both spiritually and from a scientific standpoint, it's, yeah. You know. Well, thank you, this is, yeah, well, Emptiness, uh, when, when the concept first uh, became concept, well, yes, it is concept for us when we talk about it like this. So um, it, it meant that it was empty of anything substantial. And that was really a response to the Brahmanical culture that believed in, in Atman, Atman and Brahman, the, the self and the universal principle. They were eternal. And uh, so, yes, there, there was a merging and the, there wasn't any movement or uh, what should I say, progression or, or this and that. That would be the experience. And that, that would be a very important. And 
yeah, it would change the life of the person. But I, I do not know. There weren't any of these descriptions. Maybe it is somewhere, but I didn't see them. Uh, so uh, there is one thing that we often actually forget that the idea of momentariness is, has been said right from the beginning of the Buddha's teachings. And the momentariness actually allows us to um, experience what, we, what you were just talking about, the constant motion, right? And then also that it's neither one or two, or that there isn't anything that one can latch on, right? Whereas in, in Brahmanism, you have that you really want to get to this uh, liber liberating um, cosmic principle. So you don't have any of this. You have that constant energy, the constant motion, the, the constant uh, change. Right, and, uh, and, if, that, and if, that's, if that's emptiness, then it's very attainable at any moment, at any time to anybody. It's not some mystical, magical thing that's way out there, right? right. It's not transcendent beyond something that we can comprehend or can experience. Well, for the people who experience it, uh, they, 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 they experience it as, as a real thing as well. Yeah. And, you know, uh, with that experience, uh, they, they won't have the duality either in the Brahmanical uh, tradition or Vedic tradition. Well, uh, Vedic is actually is quite different still. The idea of Atman and Brahman uh, comes uh, during the period when, uh, yeah, when Buddha or maybe just before Buddha and after Buddha, there were, there were many different uh, traditions that were working out lots of uh, different um, practices and experiences and they debated about them. So they actually uh, fed each other. Well, anyway. You're saying they fed, they fed each other? Yes, fed each other by They, informed, they informed each other? Yeah, yeah. they con constantly yeah. debated. Like, that makes uh, sense. The, yeah. the Tibetans still do, in the Tibetan tradition, they still do. But some of the things that we have been reading today, um, I had in uh, one of my classes that I was teaching, and um, the students, they started bringing in some contemporary physics and other things, and they said, oh, this is like this, this is like this. Well, I didn't have knowledge about that, so I learned from, from them. But then I started looking for uh, some materials. Uh, and it is really uh, quite fascinating that they did not have the, I mean, at Buddhist times and afterwards, they did not have the, the, the means that with which we are discovering science today, right? Yeah, right. I think yeah. a, a lot so of it is through their experience. I think a lot of concepts that I read in in these books, I think of uh, neuroscience classes I've taken where mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. thoughts arise. 
That's what's cool about being human. Yes, yes. We have to remember that every day. Is our time up? Yes, I'm just looking. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say something quickly. Uh, at the beginning, uh, Nelda, um, you were asking something about the... Uh, now I, it, it just escaped me. Well, yeah, about the warrior before enlightenment. So um, you may have heard, and I, I'm sure that uh, most of you heard about uh, King Ashoka, who um, lived in the third century uh, before Common Era. He had a long rule. Um, I don't know now, the dates change a little bit, so maybe 40 years or something like that. So he started out by really bloody wars and uh, putting most of the subcontinent of India together under, under his rule. And then apparently there was one really cruel, uh, extremely bloody uh, war on the East uh, Coast. And some, something happened uh, to, the, to the King Ashoka. And he decided uh, that he will support Buddhism. And he did, and because he united uh, his kingdom for most of the peninsula, he was able to propagate and support the, the Buddhist movements mm -hmm. and teachings. And he also uh, posted many edicts, even all the way west, uh, somewhere in Persia, or you know, now Iran, that he uh, spread the word. So um, he was a warrior, but then he changed at a, at a certain point. And he is probably most responsible for Buddhism surviving um, to the present day. It's very similar to Constantine, hmm. who was anti-Christian, but his mother, Helen, was a devout Christian and converted him. And as a result, he made Christianity in the official um, religion of his kingdom, which was vast. So a very similar um, way of spreading a, a, a spiritual practice. And his mother, Helen, um, who was named a saint, is the one person who is most responsible, at least in the Christian tradition of preserving all of those sites she made it her life's work to go visit all these holy sites and build a cathedral on each one of them oh. so i just I, I just love these similarities whether it be in war or in politics or in um uh, world dominance of how <laughs> of how practices and and populations are um, converted and maintained mm -hmm. and carried forward. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Trouty. Okay. All right, well, thank you very much. Sorry I kept you longer. Mm -hmm. um, you. Good night. Thank you, everyone. Thank good night. you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take, Take care. care. Yes. Good night. Yes.